name. Amen. Now we pick up today at chapter 1, verse 5, where we left off. I'm going to read through verse 8. Now listen to the Word of God. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son? Today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Amen. Now, you know, as a pastor, I am particularly sensitized, and certainly it's true, I think, for you all as Christians as well, that we are sensitized to the theme of salvation, Of course, it resonates with us because it's so much a part of our life that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us that we should have eternal life. I think probably every Christian probably could quote you John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's why you see that at every sporting event you go to, there's always that guy behind the field goal post, right, holding up the John 3.16 sign. And it's because salvation is so central to the Christian message. A lot of people have a misunderstanding that Christianity is about doing things primarily. Do this and don't do that. But really, at a more basic level, it's really what God has done, isn't it? It's not what we do or don't do, though there are are those ethical ethical commands upon us as Christians, certainly. I'm not denying that. But why do we obey? Well, it's because we obey somebody who has saved us, somebody who has given himself for us. What's interesting, I think, is even though this is a theme that is so central for us as Christians in an ever-growing and secularizing culture in the West— It's almost inescapable, isn't it, that men have a need for this genre of salvation. That even if they not be particularly religious or Christian or evangelical, how many times in our daily lives do we hear something of that theme of the salvation? I heard a couple of examples just this week as I was preparing for this sermon. I was listening uh, to music And a song came on. And it was not a particularly new song. It was written in 1995. I looked that up. And uh, it was by a British band called Oasis. And the the song is called Wonderwall. And in it, Noel Gallagher speaks about a, a friend who becomes to them a savior. 
And, and this friend is a woman. Some have speculated that this friend is imaginary, but nevertheless, that uh, this friend will save him. And the, and the song even goes that you're going to be my savior. You're my wonder wall. And what did he need salvation from? He needed salvation from himself. So it's interesting that even in a very secular context by a band that does not profess to be Christian, in fact, the language in the interview that I read was quite anti-Christian, uh, but nevertheless, they're, they're, they sense a need for help. They can't save themselves. You are my wonder wall. Another example I saw just this week, I saw a commercial for a technology company. And they said in the commercial, we are applying technological solutions to the world's greatest problems. And I thought to myself, really? (laughs) How, I wondered. What software could you be developing that could stand between me and a living God when I'm a sinner and have sinned against him and broken his commandments. I would like to see what this algorithm looks like. You have to ask ourselves, is that really our greatest problem? What if my greatest problem is that of human sin, that I am alienated by nature from a being who can punish me for trillions of years? And he is justly offended with me and my conduct and my thoughts and my words and my actions. And if he was to record, which he has, all of what I've done and bring forth all my ill deeds, what does the Bible say in Psalm 130? Who could stand? Romans, the Apostle Paul says what? There's none righteous, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory, the majesty, the excellency of God. Can software program really deliver me from the just demands of a holy God who punishes all wrongdoing, who cannot wink at sin, who does not clear the guilty? Is a software program going to reverse the curse that we experience because of the fall? Because of, is it going to reverse aging and sickness and death? Can an algorithm raise your body from the grave one day? So you see that their culture looks for salvation, doesn't it? Your neighbors are looking for help. They're looking for hope. They're looking for salvation. But the trouble is, for many, they're looking in the wrong place. Madison Avenue is trying to sell them a so-called solution. And many people buy into those solutions but they all are vain, aren't they? Solomon tried them all, didn't he? In the book of Ecclesiastes, he tells you, I tried wisdom. I tried tried making things. I tried being really hyper-productive, uber-productive, building gardens, walls, palaces, etc. I tried hedonism, wine and women, all that. And nothing worked. Nothing helped. I'm still going to the same place where the fool's going. I'm going to be just like a dead lion. What hope is there in that? What the author of Hebrews is reminding us this morning again in this opening chapter is we don't need an imaginary friend to be a wonder wall to us. 
God has given us a real, living, breathing Savior. God has provided a solution to our greatest problems here on earth. Now, technology is wonderful, it's good, and it mitigates a lot of the problems that are here because of sin. But it can't answer what God can do. Only God is the one who can solve the greatest problem known to man. Silicon Valley cannot do it. We can't do it by playing pretend in our own minds. So how did God do this? Well, this morning, I want to show you in three parts how God did this. First of all, he sent his son. He didn't send angels for you. He sent his son. That's point number one in verse five. Number two, he sent his son who can save because his son is fully God as is the Father. He sent His Son who can save truly because He is fully God. Number three, verse eight, and that's verse six and seven point two. Verse eight, His Son has been coronated King in heaven. He's been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And thus, can certainly and inevitably bring about your salvation. Now, I'm going to simplify those three points even more in these three sentences, because I think what I just gave you is a mouthful. It's a lot to remember. So boys and girls, let's make it simple, okay? Verse five, number one, we're going to talk about the sonship of Christ. The sonship of Christ. Number two, in verses six and seven, the worship of Christ, the worship of Christ. And number three, the kingship of Christ. In verse eight, the sonship of Christ the worship of Christ, the kingship of Christ. Those will be our three headings this morning. Now, let's consider verse 5 together, the sonship of Christ and why Christ truly can meet your greatest needs and why he is truly a savior that no amount of technology or anything under the sun is able to do for you. The sonship of Christ. The point here in verse 5 is this, that Jesus Christ is supreme and there is no one else that could save you, not even angels. God could not send an angel or a multitude of angels to save you from your dilemma. Now, why is that? Well, because your dilemma is that you, in your first parents, sinned against God. Adam and Eve in the garden, we are told, may eat of any tree in the garden, but there was one tree, the tree of the good and knowledge, tree of good and knowledge that they could not eat. And if they eat, it was the consequence was the entrance of sin and death. And of course, you know, they disobeyed. So the crime was committed by a man. And so God, in order to save man, needed to send someone who would become a man. And so the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, Christ, who is and was and shall be forever the Son of the Father, the only begotten Son of the Father. Remember, God is one being who exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so before all eternity, in the past, before God created the heavens and the earth, the triune God in their holy council said that the Son would be the one to come into the world. And that is why the Bible sometimes refers to the Son as the second or the last Adam, boys and girls. 
because the son is going to be the second man who comes into the world, the second perfect man. The first perfect man is Adam. But Adam failed to keep the covenant in the garden. And so Christ says, I, Father, will go. With the help of the Spirit, I will go, and I will keep that covenant that the first Adam has broken, and I will fulfill the obligations with a life of perfect obedience. You see, Christ came into the world under the under the condition and the obligation of that covenant, those stipulations that were brought about in the garden. And Christ the Son says, I'll do this. And so Jesus lives that holy life, that perfect life, as a substitute for us, just as Adam was a substitute for us in the garden. We, were, we fell as a consequence of what Adam did. And so Christ says, I'll be another Adam to my people. And I, the Son of God, will come into the world and I will live a righteous life. And I will die on the cross. Now, the psalm uh, that is quoted here is Psalm 2. We saw that last week. Look at verse 5. So the author of Hebrews says this, For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my Son? Now, of course, this psalm applies in its immediate context to David. This is a psalm of David. David was king of Israel. And yes, there is a sense that David was a son of the living God as a typological king. He serves as a type of Christ, as king over Israel. But the meaning, the ultimate meaning of the words spoken in Psalm 2 cannot be fulfilled by David. David cannot bring about a solution to our greatest needs because David himself is a fellow sinner. And we see that tragically, don't we? It's, it is no doubt highlighted, isn't it? In the sin with Bathsheba, the greatest of kings is still a disaster in many ways. And so these words that you are my son could not have ended with David. But rather, we see what? Look at it again in the second part of verse 5. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. This was spoken again to David in 2 Samuel 7 where God was promising David that somebody would come after him and bring about the kingdom that David could not bring about. Now again, typologically, it looks like Solomon would be very promising. But what do we find out? At the end of Solomon's life, Solomon is serving idols. Solomon falls short, doesn't he? And he can't bring it about. And then what happens after Solomon's reign? We've studied kings. Then you have the splitting of Israel and Judah. And the kingdom uh, eventually begins to wane. So where is this prom- where are these promises of verse 5 fulfilled? They are fulfilled, we are told, in the New Testament Um, Acts chapter 13, verse 33, the apostles say it is in Christ. That Notice here it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And the apostles say that this has been fulfilled in the resurrection of Christ. That Jesus Christ 
the Son of God who has become incarnate, taking to himself a real human nature so that he's both God and man. He's lived a righteous life. He's died on the cross. And now God has raised him from the dead and has seated him at his right hand. And this, says the apostles, is the fulfillment of what David foresaw, though dimly, from a distance a thousand years before the time of Christ. The promise of 2 Samuel 7, that I will sit somebody on your throne, David, who will reign, is being fulfilled, not in an earthly reign in Jerusalem, but in what? A heavenly Zion, at the right hand of God himself. Now, John Owen, the 17th century Puritan minister, notes that sometimes God would speak of Israel corporately as sons of God, plural. Sometimes he would even speak of angels as sons of God, plural. But never did God in any way apply the term singularly, son of God, except to whom? To Christ himself. And we see it at multiple points, don't we? When Jesus is baptized, he comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon him as a dove. So you have the Son. You have the Holy Spirit with the Son and upon the Son. And then the voice from heaven, the Father says what? This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Lest we forget that lesson, you have the scene at the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus takes Peter and James and John and brings them up to the high mountain. And he is transformed. He, he kind of, if you will, peels back, not his humanity, but his humiliation. And the glory of the Lord comes forth. And Christ's vestments become whiter than any uh, linen uh, cleaner could make them. So glorious is the scene. Peter doesn't know even what to say, which is unusual for Peter. Lord, let's just stay here and make three tabernacles for ourselves. But then the cloud comes, doesn't it? And it envelops him. And the father says, this is my son. This is, this is the one that David spoke of, that David sung of in Psalm 2. This is, this is the one that I promised David in 2 Samuel 7 when I told David, don't worry, David. Even though you're going the way of all flesh, I'm going to see to it that somebody from your lineage will be king forever. This is the one. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the way the Jews understood Psalm 2. They understood this is a messianic psalm. This is a messianic passage speaking about the Messiah. And so the, Hebrew of, the author to the Hebrews is doing what? He's saying, look at the sun, congregation. Behold the sun. The greatest of our needs is realized in what God has done in his son. The greatest problems that we have have been solved by God's greatest gift. Why then is there still sin, you say? Why is there still death? If the solution has already been given in Jesus Christ, well then why? Do we still have all this frustration and misery and sorrow and setbacks and disappointments and death? Because the solution, though it has been to the problem has been accomplished, it is not yet fully applied and realized. You remember the title of John Murray's great book, Redemption Accomplished? 
and applied, where John Murray makes that important distinction between the finished work of Jesus Christ and the, and the application of that work through the, media, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You think of it this way. Think of it as, as, a, as a cancer patient and the surgery has been done and the cancer has been removed surgically. But the patient still is not fully well yet. It takes time, doesn't it? And so with Christ in Jesus' death and resurrection, Christ has said it is finished. The solution has been applied, but now is the patient needs time. The kingdom of God must grow. C.S. Lewis compared it to something from World War II, and Lewis said that it was somewhat like D-Day, he said. That there, there is some sense, strategically, the war, you could say, strategically really was done at D-Day. Once that second front was opened on the West, Hitler found himself uh, between two opposing forces, and it was only a matter of time. Now, yes, there were tactical losses for the Allies during that, those coming months. But strategically, it was finished. Hitler was really done. He made a last gasp effort in the Battle of the Bulge. But uh, that didn't work, did it? And so, with the finished work of Christ, God has sent his Son into the world to solve the problem. The problem is that the world is not looking to the sun. And here in our text here, you have a congregation that's being tempted to think that the world maybe is right. Maybe you felt the weight of that temptation yourself. Maybe I've been wrong all these years. Maybe this just is the religion of my parents. And maybe, maybe, it's, maybe I was fed things that were untrue. Maybe I should listen to other voices out there in the world. Maybe they have the answer. Maybe they have the wisdom. This congregation was tempted to go back to, to, to for whatever reason, to leave Christ and to put themselves back under, under the law, under the old covenant. Because they, they say, well, the old covenant came with glory. God sent the Ten Commandments down with fire and cloud and angels. And the author of Hebrews, if I can paraphrase the language of Paul to the Galatians, you foolish Hebrews, you know, who's bewitched you? Do you not see the supremacy of the Son? He is far greater than angels. Why go back to types and shadows when the substance has been revealed in the person and the Son of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're there. Maybe you're near there. Maybe at times in your weak moments you've given thought to being there. But remember what Peter said. Lord, when everybody else was leaving, Jesus said, are you guys going to leave me too? What did Peter say? Lord, where can we go? You are the Son of God. You alone have the words of eternal life. There is nowhere else to go. Even if we do not fully understand all that you are saying, even if we go through providences that are mysterious to us and hard for us to grasp, why, as a Christian, should I be going through this? Nevertheless, Lord, you are the rock. You're the foundation. 
You're the only place I can build my home and my life. Every other place is sinking sand. There is nowhere else to go. You are the Son of God. So number one, the Sonship of Christ. Number two, the author of Hebrews tells us secondly about the worship of Christ. The supremacy of Jesus Christ is seen not only in his sonship, in that he is superior to that of angels, but also that even the angels themselves worship Christ. To leave Christ, to go back to an epic, an age where the law was administered by angels, is to go back to less, not more. For even these angels are not leaving Christ. Even these angels longed to look into the mystery of Christ and what God was doing in Christ. They knew that the Son of God had come into the world. They knew that by the power of the Holy Spirit, he had become a man. But the angels at the same time are wondering, what in the world is God doing? The Son has left the glory of the Father? And angels knew what it was like to leave the glory of the Father. They have to come in here periodically and fix things up and watch over you and keep the toddler from going down the steps. And, you know, they do all that stuff, but then they go back to glory, don't they? They know it's not a fun place down here. They know it's far better. And so they're amazed that the Son would leave the Father and come into this world of sorrow and misery, this veil of tears, and become the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And the angels are going, what is God doing here? This is too glorious. This is incomprehensible. We can apprehend it, but we cannot comprehend. Why in the world would God, the Almighty, come into the world he has created himself, a world that is in rebellion and has rejected him? Why does he not just judge the world? Why does he not tell us angels to come and do to the whole world what we did to Sodom? Why does he not tell us to do that? Why does he send the Son? And so the the angels themselves, look at the verse here. It says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, that is Christ, Christ is the firstborn, meaning that firstborn means he's the son of preeminence. He is the preeminent one. So again, when he brings the preeminent one into this world, into this creation, he quotes here, and let all the angels of God worship him. Isn't that what we see even at the incarnation? When the good news is pronounced, the angels say to the shepherds, behold, salvation has come. And then in verse 7, in the angels, he says, who makes angels his winds, his ministers of flame, of fire. He's saying here that as great as angels are, they are but what servants compared to the Son. The angels are glorious. They have a glory. They have a power. You don't want to go up against an angel, boys and girls. You'll lose. Just ask Jacob. You know, when, when when you picture Jacob at wrestling the angel of the Lord. Keep in mind, it was more like your, your, your four-year-old trying to tackle dad. Okay, Got him by the leg, got him by the knee. Dad, you're going down. Oh, I'm going down. You know, 
Here, let me touch your hips. See what happens there. Ah! And Jacob's like, okay. And for the rest of his life, he's reminded who had the upper hand that whole time. Angels are glorious. But what does the scripture say here in our text? They're mere ministers, servants of the Son. So to leave Christ for the ministry of angels who brought forth the law on Sinai with fire on the mountain, they are leaving the greater for the lesser. Notice here that this this sentence here, let all the angels of God worship him. I want you to think about that for a moment because I want you to think about that verse in light of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. Because here in our verse before us, God is saying, let the angels who are servants, who are creatures, let them worship the Son. But what does the Father tell us in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8? He tells us in that verse, I don't share my glory with another. Do you see that where I'm driving with this? God has told us in Isaiah, I don't share my glory with any other being, any other creature. I alone am God. My name is Lord. I am the Lord. That is my name. I shall not give or share my glory with another. But then here we have the Father saying, angels worship the Son. Now, is that some kind of contradiction? No, we're dealing with the mystery of the Trinity here, aren't we? We are dealing with the fact that the Son is distinct from the Father And yet, the Son shares the same subsistence, the same essence as the Father. The Father and the Son are one, Jesus says. I and the Father are one. To see me is to see the Father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. That is, he's distinct from the Father. And yet, was God, is the way that John puts it here. And so, What we are seeing here is God the Father is commanding the angels that the angels give reverence and worship to his Son. He is willing to share his glory with a distinct person because this person person also is a part of the one triune God. And thus he is not sharing his glory with another. So how do we... What do we make of this? Let me give you just a few thoughts with regard to that. First of all, it is necessary that the Son have the same essence with the Father. Otherwise, there's no, there's no salvation. There's no solution to our human problem. If Christ himself is not fully God if he was born by ordinary human propagation between Mary and Joseph, then we do not really have a Savior. If he is but an ordinary man, he cannot save us. Why, boys and girls? Because he has then the same problem that we have. Some liberals want to say that Christ became divine by an extraordinary life. That is a distortion of the scriptural data. The Bible makes it clear that Christ did not rise to the divine, rise to the level of deity because of some kind of extraordinary service to God, 
but rather from the beginning he was God, is God, and shall be God, and that he added to that deity our humanity in a miraculous way. It's because they deny the miraculous that they have to deny what the Bible means by him being the Son of God. You see, a liberal will still say, oh, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. They do not mean it the same way that the Scripture intends it. It is necessary for Christ to be both God and man, otherwise there's no hope. This is why liberal churches actually have nothing to offer. Because they can't preach the real salvation. And so what do you do? You've got to stay employed. So what do you do as a liberal minister? Well, you try and help, quote-unquote, good people do good things. That's what you do. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is not an exhortation to do good things. The gospel is good news that God has saved wretched people. The good news is I don't have to go to hell. Christ has saved me. That when I die, I go into the presence of the Lord with great glory, blameless, and with great joy. And that on the final day of history, God will raise me from the dead. No technology company can do that. No amount of financial resources can do that. You see, if you have drowned and you're at the bottom of a swimming pool or at the bottom of Lake West Point, you cannot be brought up by another who is in the same condition you are. If you are both there, you're both drowned. You can't be saved by somebody else who is drowned. If you're going to be saved, it's going to have to come from above. Somebody from above who has the ability and the resource to reach down and pull you back up. So if Christ is an ordinary man by way of Joseph and Mary, he's in the same boat. Well, not in a boat, obviously. He's, he's with us at the bottom. That's why God had to send the Son. That would be the only way to solve this problem. And this is another application is why technology and education and finance and defense and various human philosophies are all without power in themselves to save us. Now, these things have great common grace benefits for us. I don't want to underestimate the blessing of technology and education and finance and defense, etc., But chariots do not save. We are not delivered by the strength of the horse or the legs of a man. We are delivered by the Lord God Almighty. In Him do we trust and not in ourselves. i got to move on quickly to the third point, and that is the kingship of Christ. We've looked at the sonship of Christ, the worship of Christ, and then thirdly, look at verse 8, the kingship of Christ. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Now, yesterday, I missed the coronation. Sorry, but not sorry. I was reading John Owen desperately trying to get ready for this sermon. (laughs) 
And so my nose had to be in the books uh, pretty much much of the day. I figured it'd be on YouTube. So there was a coronation, I hear, <laughs> yesterday. Um, notice here that what the author of Hebrews is saying, there's been a more important one, though. That Christ, who did everything that he was supposed to do in this world, even to the point of death on the cross, being raised from the dead, is now what? He has been put on the throne. Now this quotation comes from Psalm 45. Again, a song that is pointing to the glory of Solomon. But as I said with David, I say with Solomon, Solomon cannot fulfill all the meaning that you find in Psalm 45. Because Solomon ended poorly, didn't he? And it led to a division in his kingdom. Why does the author bring about these passages about the Messiah's kingship into this argument? One, I think it is to show the preeminence of Christ. That Christ is preeminent. Number two, that Jesus Christ, the risen, glorified Christ, supersedes all the shadows and types of the old covenant ceremonies of the law, even if angels did accompany the giving of that law. What we have need to see and our neighbors need to see is, again, in our country and elsewhere in the world, is the glory of Christ. This is why Paul said, we preach Christ and him crucified. Christ is the answer. Christ is the solution to our most complex problems. Most people only conceive of Jesus Christ in his humiliations. Indeed, some churches, they... If you go in their sanctuary, you see a crucifix, which is a human on a cross. But we need to remember, the author of Hebrews is saying that we remember that, but we also remember he has defeated that. God has brought him forth victoriously from the grave to vanquish sin, to vanquish Satan, to vanquish death itself, and to seat his son on a throne. Why a throne? Because that's a seat of power. It's the seed of glory. The author of Hebrews is showing us the way forward, but we need the grace of God to hear with ears that can hear. God has sent his son. The son is fully God, and the son is reigning as a king. And so what is our response? Number one, you need to make sure you have faith in this son, in this person, Christ. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. You, you need to believe in him. You need to trust him. You need to get to know him. How do I get to know somebody who isn't in this world? How do I know somebody, pastor, who sits on a throne in heaven? Well, you get to know him through reading his word here. God has told us that it's better that the son should go because he'll send the spirit and the Holy Spirit will teach you and instruct you in the truth. Jesus said, abide in the truth, abide in my word, abide in the Bible, and I will show you the Son. I will show you salvation. I will show you the, the solution to your greatest problems in life. You must have faith in him. You must trust him like Peter, even if you're in a, a perplexing situation right now in your life and you don't understand why God is making you go through what you're going through now and it seems like friends are failing you and it seems like 
fellow believers are failing you. It seems like people you once walked to the temple with, to the Lord, in the house of the Lord with, are, are, are abandoning Christ, and you're wondering, you know, should I leave too? There's nowhere else for you to go. Trust in Christ. Look at the glory. Look at the fact that He is the Son. He is uniquely called the Son like no one else was ever called individually the Son. Look at the fact that He is also equal with God in all His glory and power. God won't share His glory with another, but He shares it with the person of Christ. Meaning what? The person of Christ is God. Number three, that the Son is reigning supremely as King. Jesus told us before the ascension, all power, all authority... As R.C. Sproul has said, there is not one random molecule traversing the universe somewhere outside the control of Christ on the throne. All things are working together for your good if you are in Christ Jesus. How can God promise that to you? Because he's in control of all things. If he wasn't in control of everything, he couldn't make that promise to you. There would always be that asterisk. Uh Uh-oh, that random molecule might disturb the whole plan, but it can't happen. Christ is on the throne. He has all power. He has all authority. This means you also need to repent from sin for which Jesus gave his life. Don't continue to live a life of sin against one who died so that you could be delivered from its dominion and tyranny. And lastly, as we close Christ is no imaginary friend, as in that song, Wonderwall. He is a real friend. He abides. He sticks closer than a brother. His love is greater than the love of women, we are told. And though he has gone away to another world to prepare a place for you, he is a real Wonderwall. 